Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Well, do I need to turn the air conditioning on? Is it too warm in here for you? <laughs> I, uh, I want to start our time by reading the scripture passage, passage that we're going to be in today. Uh, if you're visiting with Renaissance, one of the things we love to do here is just kind of preach through or work our way through books of the Bible. And so last year, at some point, we started a study in the book of Luke. And so we're continuing our study in the book of Luke. Today, we're in Luke chapter 9. And I'll be reading verses 10 through 17. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can look at the words on the screen uh, behind me and follow along there. It says here in verse 10, it says, On their return, the apostles told Jesus, him, all that they had done. And then Jesus took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, verse 11. And when the crowds learned of it, they followed Jesus. And Jesus then welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And he cured those who had a need of healing. And now the day began to wear away, Luke tells us. And the 12 disciples came up to Jesus and said, Hey, send the crowd away. Tell them to go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are out here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, well, then you give them something to eat. And so they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, and unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, unless we go buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And so he said to his disciples, well, then have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, And they did so, verse 15, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven. He said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves. And he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Verse 17, and this is so great. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. And there were 12 baskets of broken pieces left over. This is, a, is what we say is the word of the Lord. This is a trustworthy, um, let me, <laughs> I'm starting before I, I want to start. These, these words are more than just words. Not I mean, if you understand what I'm trying to say. And, and, and if we place ourselves in front of them and allow the Holy Spirit to do something inside of us, then these words can actually bring life to us. So I pray that Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit, would bring us life through these words. So let's get started. So this miraculous story uh, that's, that we just read here, found in Luke, is actually recorded in all four of the biographical stories about Jesus' life. We call them Gospels. If you know anything about the Bible, you know the Gospels are Matthew and Mark, Luke and John. And each of the different authors give us a unique perspective about this story. And they include different and varying details. 
And when they're all put together, they, t- they tell quite a compelling story. So if you want a little bit of homework, and I mean a little bit, something to do before the NFL kicks off at 4 o'clock today, you could read this story in all four Gospels. Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, Luke 9 we just read here, and in John chapter 6. And there's only one other miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Ready for a little trivia stuff here? Only one other miracle in all four Gospels. And you're racking your brain right now thinking about it. Does anyone know what it is? Don't shout it out. That's weird. It's the resurrection of Jesus. So in all four Gospels, they tell this story and the resurrection of Jesus. And a bunch of other stuff too. But all of them chose... I believe, being led by the Holy Spirit to include this story. So that fact alone, it forces us to consider the importance of this miraculous story, which is why I said earlier that these words are more than just words. They're they're power to us. They can teach us something. I also want to remind us before we get started that Luke was not an eyewitness to this event. You remember that Luke, like a journalist, he had painstakingly interviewed many individuals who had followed Jesus and his ministry. Luke did not follow Jesus. He, was, he came after the fact. He came, came to faith after Christ had been crucified and raised from the dead. But he interviews all of these individuals, and he writes together a biography or a story about Jesus' life. And in so doing, Luke does this unique thing. He arranges some of the details in different order than some of the other Gospels. So if you're reading the other Gospels, some of them are a little more chronological. Luke does not necessarily follow a chronological order in his storytelling. He does this to literarily tell us his version of the story. Luke in particular, if you remember in Luke chapter one, when we began the study, he's writing this story about Jesus to a person that the Bible calls Theophilus. Theophilus is a Christian, friend of Luke's for sure, right? We talked about this last week. And he's writing this, this, these words to him so that he would have a certainty in his understanding of the things that he had been taught. And so Luke has a motivation behind writing down these words and it's so that they would understand the story he's trying to tell. He wants his readers, Theophilus et al., and us to understand these words and, more importantly, to believe these words. So the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, it's sandwiched between Two narratives. If you were reading earlier in Luke chapter 9, you saw that there's this moment where the question of who is Jesus is being asked. King Herod is asking, who is this Jesus? And if you read the passage after this, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, it's, it's Jesus himself going to the disciples, asking them, who do people say that I am? And there's this little sandwich, a Luke sandwich, if you will, of these two different narratives and sandwiched between these two moments like toasted sesame buns is the only one I can see it. Luke spreads out this miraculous story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people at sunset. And at first glance, the story seems to be out of place. It seems to be an interruption into the greater narrative. It doesn't seem to be pushing the narrative forward of answering the question, well, who is Jesus? Tell us the answer, Luke. Don't just give us some story about some fish and some loaves. When Jesus does get to ask his disciples in the moment right after this, and he says, who do you say that I am? It is Peter who famously answers this way. He says, well, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And I'm going to argue that I don't think Peter could have answered that question had he not experienced what they went through in this story. To answer who is Jesus, they had to first walk through with him the miraculous feeding of 5,000 people at sunset in a gorgeous part of the world 
sitting on some wonderfully manicured lawn somewhere. I have no idea. That's how I picture it in my mind. It's beautiful. And they're sitting down, and Jesus is feeding all of them. So to understand this story, we must pull back, excuse me, something in my eye, pull back uh, on the story a little bit and gain a different vantage point. So let's back up just a little bit. Here we go. So God's people, the Israelites, were once a people who worshiped God in a place called the promised land. Has anyone ever heard of the promised land before? Yeah, we've heard of the promised land. And, and the reason we call it the promised land is because, well, in the Bible, it's called the promised land, but it's called the promised land because God made a covenant. It's not a word we use a lot today, but he made a, a contract with a group of people through a person called Abraham. Now, Abraham was promised, right? He's the patriarch and the ancestor to the, the Israelite people. And God made a contract or covenant with him that this land that he was going to give them would be a gift of inheritance to all of Abraham's descendants. But that gift, and if you read your Bible, you'll know this, that that gift is accompanied by ethical responsibilities. Israel, the people, may possess the land, but God is still ruler over all creation, and so they remain accountable to him with what they do with it. It's not a one-and-done type deal. The covenant between the two says, I will do this, and you will do this back. And so at some point in the story of God's people, a famine in the land, the promised land, drives out the Israelites. They migrate south to Egypt, where God made provision for them. This, if you know your Bible, is the story, the incredible story of Joseph, right? He's thrown into a pit by his brothers, and he's travels down to Egypt and works for the Pharaoh or whatever. This is a wonderful story you can read about in Genesis. But unfortunately, God's people did not move back into the land after the famine ended in the promised land. In fact, they stayed down in Egypt where they remained and eventually were enslaved for over 430 years. At some point, crying out under the rule and reign of a wicked king called Pharaoh, they needed rescued. And so they cried out, so God remembered his covenant, his promise, right? And so he sent them a rescuer named Moses. And Moses goes down to bring the people up out of Egypt, to bring them out of slavery, out of bondage, out of malice and cruelty, out of the wrong way of living that God intended for them. Moses comes to deliver them out of that and to take them back into the place of what? Their inheritance. And so Moses is coming to give God's people back what they had walked away from some four centuries before. So if you wanna see a display of God's might and his willingness to fight for his people, you need to read the book of Exodus. If you don't know your Bible, it's an Old Testament part, and there's a New Testament part. The Old Testament part's in the beginning of the Bible. And the first book is Genesis. The second book is Exodus. So just flip a few pages in and read the story of Exodus and see God fight for his people through Moses and rescue them. Moving forward in the story with the drowned Egyptian army bobbing in the Red Sea behind them, the Israelites now begin their journey back into the land of their forefathers but they would need to travel through a desert 
a desolate place to get there. And so after several days of traveling through the wilderness, their meager provisions that they brought with them ran out. They needed water, God provided water. They needed food and God provided food for them. And he did so this way. Moses declared to the people of God that God was going to give them bread from heaven. And this bread from heaven is something called manna. Have you ever heard of the phrase bread from heaven or manna from heaven? It comes from that story where God was feeding his people miraculously through this weird substance that came down from the sky and landed on the ground every morning. It's a fascinating story. But know this, God gave them life in the desert. God came to them in a desolate place not abandoning them, but sustaining them, bringing them life through this bread. Bread is a significant item in the Bible. Simply we know this, that we need bread for sustenance. Say amen. Unless you're one of those anti-carb people, right? I don't judge you. Jesus does. He is the bread of life. I'm just saying. So if you've got a gluten intolerance, take it up with him. I don't know what to tell you. So simply, we need bread. And our hunger reminds us that we depend on God. We depend on God because he's the one who created food. I know it's easy to just go to Texas Roadhouse and order at the bar and then eat. But ultimately, we know that all of this comes from something, someone who thought it before us. I'll create this being, I'll create this food, and in, so, in that relationship that they have, it will point to me, the, the one who provides food for them, the one who created this whole idea of eating in the first place. Praise you, Jesus, for that. So many of the stories in the Bible in, involve bread, and it helps us to see the symbolism that is used in the Bible uh, by the authors to display God's promises to, to all his people. And so Luke here uses the story of Jesus feeding the crowd as an example of God's faithfulness. So again, back up. There's a Luke sandwich happening here. Who is Jesus is the question the king and the authorities want to know. And then Jesus comes to the disciples. Who do people say that I am? The question to be answered is who is Jesus? And in the middle of that, he tells them this story to point to God's faithfulness. Something about Jesus is to be understood in this story. So let's look through it together, shall we? Verse 10, it says this, that on the disciples' return, the apostles' return, they come back to tell him everything that they had done. And so he takes them and he withdrew to a part called Bethsaida, verse 11. And when the crowds had learned that Jesus had left the area and was moving on, they followed him. And it says that Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and he cured those who had need of healing. So just real quick, Luke is connecting this part of the story with what happened previously in the chapter. Jesus had just sent out the disciples and empowered the disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God and to heal people. And so they went out and did all of that. And the disciples went out and they returned, right, after being sent out two by two to preach the gospel. And because of their work, and this is what I loved, and I saw this a couple weeks ago, because of the work that the disciples did, the fame of Jesus continued to grow. So if we're a devoted follower of Christ, it doesn't matter if you do any ministry, publicly or not, but whatever you're doing, the fame of Jesus should grow, should grow around you, not the fame of you around you. Right? I know I'm standing on a platform as I say this. I promise you there is no one in this room who 
who does not want this position more than me. <laughs> I will gladly give this microphone to anyone. Anyone? Yeah, that's what I thought. Just kidding. <laughs> it's, nobody wants to build their own platform. I definitely don't want to build my own platform, but I want Jesus to build his platform in me. Is this making sense? Okay. So it's this, that the fame of Jesus is increasing and people are beginning to ask, who is Jesus? So they gather together with Jesus to discuss everything that had happened. They come back from doing their ministry. You can imagine this sort of performance review that's about to take place with Christ the Lord. <laughs> How'd you do? Can you imagine this uh, uh, happening at your work? Imagine a conversation filled with encouragement, filled with critique. We know at least one time the disciples came back to Jesus and said, hey, everything went pretty well, but there was this demon and this one dude, and we couldn't cast him out. And Jesus stopped, and he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you need to know, sometimes those demons don't come out without fasting and prayer. And like just, just kindly just gives them some instruction. He doesn't berate them for doing it wrong or not trying harder or for not knowing. You should know. We've talked about this, fool. You know how this goes. No, he doesn't. He says, oh, yeah, you should try prayer and fasting. That'll, that'll help them next time. So anyways, he encourages them, he critiques them, whatever, but he doesn't berate them. And when Jesus sends out the, the disciples, he instructed them to take nothing with them. Do you remember this? A couple weeks ago when, when Chris spoke, he tells them, don't take a shirt, don't take a, a, a staff, don't take food, don't take money, and he sends them out. And if you're like me, you'd be wondering, well, how are they going to be provided for? What if they need a place to sleep? What if they need something to eat? And the whole point in that story is to say, well, God will provide for you. And so the disciples go out with a call to preach and to heal, and, and God provided a place for them to sleep, and he provided food for them to eat and wine to drink, and, and when they got hungry, God fed them. Anyways, it sounds exactly like the story of Exodus in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Say yes, and I'll move on. It's because it is the same story. This story is lather, rinse, repeat in Scripture that God's people find themselves in a place of desolation or lack or need, and God meets that need. Or, or wait for it, you can fill it yourself. Just do it all yourself. That'll work out, right? No, the whole point in these stories is to remind us that God is the one who wants to provide for your need. Why don't you sit back and enjoy the ride sometimes? Anyways, if you're stressed out, that word is for you, from the Lord. That he would release you from you trying to do everything on your own. So anyways, Luke does not record any details of the ministry of the disciples. It just simply says that the fame of Jesus grew because of their work, which we already talked about. So we know this. When the disciples return, Jesus pulls them aside to a little town on the edge of the sea, in the edge of the wilderness called Bethsaida. One of the other gospel writers tells us that Philip, one of the disciples, this was his hometown, so it's like a homecoming for him. So that's awesome. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus wanted them to take a break from their ministry and to rest for a little bit. You all agree ministry is hard sometimes, right? And sometimes you just need to take a break. And so Jesus sees it on their face. They look haggard, weary. Let's take a break. Let's go to a little resort town called Bethsaida. We'll hit up Philip's mom. Maybe she'll make a cake or something. I don't know. They're going to go to his place and hang out. And they've been so busy, Mark tells us, that the disciples and Jesus haven't even, haven't even taken time to eat. He says, let's take a break and go get a burger. So anyways, Matthew says Jesus and the disciples, they get into a boat and they made the quick trip 
by crossing there by the sea. But the crowds saw Jesus get into the boat with his disciples, and they knew where he was headed. And one of the other gospels, I don't remember, Mark or John, tells us that the crowds ran ahead of them. So they saw where Jesus was going, and they ran around the horn of the sea, if you will, and actually beat them there. Interesting aspect, this is about the time that the Passover was taking place in Israel, so the crowds were just thronging through this area. So great numbers of people, they see Jesus, his fame is growing, and they see him crossing over to go to that town, and so people want to know who he is, and so they labor themselves to get in front of Jesus. Is this speaking to anyone today? They labored themselves to get in front of him. So get to where Jesus is going. Anyways, so they beat him over there, and they want to have time and rest and get something to eat. But when Jesus steps off the boat, the Bible tells us that he saw all the multitude, and he saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them. And Luke even tells us, and he welcomed them. Luke says that Jesus then shared the kingdom of God to them, and healed everyone who needed it. And this is in stark contrast to what the disciples did. Look here in the next verse, verse 12. It says, as the day began to wear away, the 12 came to Jesus and said, send them away, bro. They're so, my words, not their words. They're so stinking needy. All they do is take, take, take from us. Can we just have a moment? And so notice how they respond to how Jesus responds. Jesus says, no, 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 they're welcome. In fact, one of the gospel writers, I don't remember which, maybe Matthew, no, it doesn't matter. But he just says he saw them as like sheep without a shepherd. And he welcomed them. Know this, Jesus was just as tired as the disciples but he had compassion on the crowds of people. He knows sheep need to be led to a place where water is. He knows sheep need to be provided for. They can't provide for themselves. They don't have sharp teeth. They can't go chase down something and eat it. They have to go to a place where grass is. And without a shepherd leading them, they will starve. Jesus sees them as people who need cared for. And so Jesus, unlike some of the disciples, unlike, wait for it, some of us in the room, welcomed them and fed them, and healed them. Verse 13, he says, no, you can't send them away. Verse 13 says, I want you to give them something to eat. Uh-oh, learning exercise, here we go. <laughs> All right, Jesus is at it again. And so they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, and unless we go to the store to Casey's and order a couple pizzas or whatever, there's no way we're going to have enough food for all these people. And immediately, Jesus rebukes their idea of expecting someone else to do what they can do. Oh, this is so good. I hope this resonates. So many times, we just want someone else to do the very thing that God is calling us to do. And it's just so easy to let someone else do it. And there's so many people who overwork anyways. We'll just give them one more thing. Let them do it, right? So he, he rebukes that idea. And then they argue that they don't have what it takes. We don't have. God, Jesus, if you want me to do that, I can't, I can't give them what you say they need. I can't be that person for her. I have my own things going on. I can't, I can't also work a full-time job 
and take care of the yard and make sure all the, the house is maintained and be the spiritual leader in my house. I need someone else to do that. And I say that jokingly because sometimes as parents, we get so busy maintaining our households, we leave the spiritual direction to people like, I don't know, the church. Don't get me wrong, I like church. I actually work at a church. Did you guys know that? <laughs> like, that's my J-O-B. But listen, my job is not to, to train your children spiritually, nor is it our children's workers downstairs. We are to come alongside you and help you. You are the ones who, who should do that. Is this resonating with anyone? And all that to say, yeah. So, so sometimes we feel like we don't have the very thing that God wants us to, to use for them. And he says, you do have it in you. You just need to not do it yourself. Do it with me. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. So know this. If God is asking anything of us, if he's wanting us to do something, I'm telling you right now, as God, as my witness, he will provide a way for you to do it. Hear me when I say this. If he is asking you to do something, you can do it. I feel like Bob the Builder at this point. Anyone? You can do it. Is that right? From there? I don't know. It's not... I'm a Scooby-Doo kid, anyways. If he's telling you to do something, the only thing stopping you from doing it is you. It's you. There is no lack. There is nothing inside of you that is missing. If he is driving you towards it, you can get it done. And if you think it's impossible, it might be because you're looking at the natural way the way the world works instead of the supernatural ways of God. And so they remind Jesus, dude, we only have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus, God bless him, says, that's enough. That'll work. And he tells them to start. Let's get after it then. Oh, you've got five? Oh, pff, I had no idea. Let's get going. And he starts. For verse 14, it says, there's about 5,000 men there. The other Gospel writers tell us there's also women and children. We don't know how many, but at least 5,000, maybe 7,500 people, maybe 10,000. He says, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, verse 15. And so they did so. They all sat down. Why groups of 50, you ask? Luke doesn't tell us. We don't know. It's possible it's just an easier way to serve them. I don't know. Just remember this. The disciples still don't know how they're going to feed them. They still don't know how they're going to attain the goal, Right? It would have been better if Jesus had just told them to go to town and buy some food, but he doesn't say that. He says, have them get in groups of 50. But guess what they did? They obeyed him. And here we encounter perhaps the greatest wisdom principle for living a Christian life. And if you're taking notes, holy cow, write this one down. That sometimes obedience, it must precede understanding. Sometimes our obedience, it must precede our understanding of what's taking place. And this implies that there are moments when you may not fully grasp the reasons behind certain instructions or even events, but we prioritize trust and obedience to God as the crucial marker of our person. We read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. This is the only other verse I'll give you, but it is profound. It says this, that we are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to not lean on our what? Our own understanding. This is, this is a coffee mug verse. You don't have to be a Christian and you know this verse. And it's true. 
And this verse urges us, and this story urges us to trust in the Lord wholeheartedly, avoiding dependence solely on our personal understanding. And it underscores, underscores rather the concept that our faith in Jesus requires surrendering to his guidance in the absence of immediate clarity regarding the reasons involved. That's a big sentence. Apologies. But are you picking up what I'm putting down? Just nod and I'll move on. And Luke shows us that the disciples followed Jesus' command even though they weren't sure how it was going to work out. So they put him in groups of 50. Now what, Jesus? Guys, you know the, the end, the goal that he's leading us to, it seems so far-fetched, but all he's asking for you to do is just the next thing he's told you to do. Like, the end result depends on him, yes? Just do the next thing. Just do the next thing he tells you to. I have 100 stories I could tell you about that, but I only have about 40 minutes left, so I'm hustling to get through of all this, through of all this. First 16, he takes the five loaves, loaves, Jesus does, right? And he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing over them. It's probably one of the reasons why we pray over our food. If you ever wonder where that came from, probably something like this. It's a common Jewish practice for families to break bread and to bless it before they ate it. And as he breaks the loaves, he gives it to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now, Bible commentator Trent Butler writes this, that taking the resources that the disciples claim to be the only ones available, so Jesus just takes what he has, Jesus dedicates them in prayer to the Father. So you take what you have and give it to God. He sent the disciples then to distribute that food amongst the multitude. And in breaking and blessing the bread, Jesus is following the customs, as I said, of Jewish families. And he did what he would later do in the Last Supper. If you remember that he sat before his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion and says, listen, he takes a piece of bread, he breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. And it's a picture of what will one day happen to his, his body as he dies on the cross for us. So as we read this narrative in Luke's gospel, it reminds us of the Lord's death, his broken body, and it reminds us that, we will, that he will not eat it again until he returns for the church. Amen. The highlight of this verse is found in the word gave. Wait for it. This is so profound, I just learned it this week. It says he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. Gave it to the disciples. In both Mark and Luke's version, the tense of that verb gave in the original Greek is imperfect. And it just signifies this, that Jesus gave and kept on giving. All right, so in Luke we read, and he takes the bread, he, he blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to the disciples. But the original Greek word for that word gave, it's translated as gave, it means that he gave it to them and continued to give it to them. And if you're like me, you've always wondered, well, how did they do the miracle? Like, where, where, did, the, where did, the, did they just, like, overflow in the basket? I think the, the picture here is that Jesus is the one providing the miracle. We know that, Yes. But it's, look where it's happening. It's happening in front of the disciples. This is so profound. I wish I could get there. I'm so off my notes. I just need to tell you something. I wondered if when they handed the baskets to the people, if they didn't look in the basket and just see it like growing, like some like strange movie prop or something. That's not how it happens. It's like when the baskets ran empty, the disciples ran back to Jesus who continued to what? Give them more. When Peter answers the question next week, or later in, in I say next week, but in, in the, the passage after this, and Jesus says, who do people say that I am, right? 
Peter answers, you are the Christ, the one chosen by God, sent by God for us. Why does he say that? Because he saw Jesus give him bread and bread and bread and bread. And he knows the stories of the Bible where God is the only one who gives bread to his people. You are the one we've been waiting for. This miracle doesn't happen in front of the crowds. In fact, the, the crowds, in all four Gospels, none of the writers make mention at all of their reaction to this story. To them, it's just a dude dropping off a loaf of bread and a fish. It means nothing to them. It is oblivious to them what is happening over there where Jesus is, where the, the, the dam has been opened and bread and fish are just flowing. And they have no idea over here. It, it, it does um, cause me to pause and wonder how many of the miraculous supernatural things is God doing in the lives around us and we miss because it just seems so common to us. We were praying this morning um, my wife and I, we worked this weekend. My wife does uh, a lot of the books for the church here. And she also has a job at Millican. And um, so a lot of her work for the church is done at night and on weekends. And so this weekend we came in to work. And a lot of the work that she was doing was getting the, um, the giving statements ready for all y'all who give money to the church. Yay, give yourself a hand. Yay, well done. Thank you for the one person who gives to the church. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about it. like if you give to the church and you give us your name, you don't just like throw a buck in the giving box. Like there's a record of that. And at the end of the year, you can take said record and give it to your accountant or whatever. And they can, they can deduct that giving from your taxes. You guys know what I'm saying? Right? So giving statements have to go out. And so she's working on this giving statement, uh, these giving statements for the whole church this, this week. And in prayer this morning, I, it just hit me. I don't know where it came from. Probably the Lord for sure. But like, if, if we were to give the Lord a giving statement at the end of 2023, like of all the things that he gave to us this year, what do you think it would look like? And I don't mean the church in general, you. Like if the Lord was saying, hey, I want my giving statement, I'm doing my taxes this week, and I want you to give me a list of everything that I gave you last year, what would you write on it? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? How big is the list? Look at me. It's bigger than you can imagine. You, you have no idea the things he's given you. you. You can't possibly know all the things that he's given to you. If you want to answer who is Jesus, you, you, can't, you can't answer that question without seeing this story. That he is taking on the role in the, the Bible of, the, of God who gives bread and sustains his people in the desolate place. Luke uses the word, they were in a desolate place. This is the story of Exodus, of God's people being led from one place to another. And the crowds are following Jesus, many of them because they're hungry, many of them because they just need healed, many of them just because they like a party. Anyone? <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> 
Yeah, some of them are just coming because they just like a good time. And God is leading them through his son, Jesus. Know this, that we think God is performing miracles all around us. I still think God performs miracles. Say amen if you agree. At Renaissance, I'll just say this, we are continuationists, not cessationists. It's just a fancy way of saying that we believe the supernatural and the miraculous happens still today. Yes, amen. We believe God still heals. He still acts in miraculous ways, and he does so because why? Because he desires to. He wants to. You ain't got to twist his arm to do it. And the crowds might not have noticed what was happening, but the people who needed to see it was the disciples, and they saw it. Every time the basket made its way from the group, they grabbed just enough food for themselves. They have no idea of the basket's meager beginnings. They have no idea where it started, but the disciples know. And when you lean down to serve people close to you, they, I, when I, one of my favorite things to say here at this church, or when people find out, like I went to, people I went to school with or grew up with, they, some of them over here, they, and they find out that I'm a pastor of a church, it blows their mind, right? Because if you knew my meager beginnings, and, and that's, that's the life that all of us have. Like if you feel like you can't serve others or help others because maybe you're somewhat damaged or whatever, I'm like, dude, get over it. We're all that. Everyone has a meager beginning, but God multiplies in us and changes us and then gives us enough to serve out. I think I'm done. We done? That's it. I'm done. Okay. So let me run through the rest of my stuff here. I, it's really all I wanted to say. I didn't know how I'd get there. I think I got there. If I got there, just say, yeah, and we'll leave. Yeah. <laughs> I got a whole bunch more. I have, I'm serious. I have a whole lot more words. But if you, if you got it, I'll, I'll quit. All right. I don't know what to do right now. I, I Half of you are asleep. I see you. You think I can't see your eyeballs, but I know you're sleeping. All right. One last run through. Let me make sure. Yeah, we're done. Okay, let's pray. Uh, you guys are great. Would you, um, would you do this with me? Would you go ahead and stand? And how about this? This is a very weird thing to do, but we're in church. We do weird stuff in church. If you don't have anything in your hands, would you just hold your hands out? This is a posture of receiving. So you can imagine the disciples walking around with baskets and the hungry and the needy were standing there. Just They needed a handout. And Jesus is coming to provide it for them. And we don't, we don't have to look far in this room to realize that all of us are pretty needy that we all have things, we're carrying things, there's family situations, there's medical situations. There, to be honest with you, there's just things outside of our control. They're just, they're just things that we, in our natural living, can't change. But God can. And so let us posture ourselves like those receiving from the Lord. So God, we come before you now with hearts full of gratitude, so just think for, for a moment, all the things that God has done for you. What's the giving statement you're giving God last year? Just think about all the things that he's done and continues to do. God, we thank you for all of the, the lessons we're learning through passages like this of 
the miraculous feeding of 5,000. We can reflect in our own lives of all the miraculous ways that you provided for us. But we come to you now, Lord, we seek your guidance. We seek your guidance and direction. Help us to trust you in our lives, Lord. May we be like the disciples who learn to obey even when faced with uncertainty. When you tell us to put them in groups of 50, Lord, give us the faith to just put them in groups of 50. If you tell us to to call so-and-so that you haven't talked to since high school, God, help us to to have the faith to just call so-and-so. We don't need to know why, just to walk in obedience. God, help us to grasp the depth of the atoning work on the cross that John spoke about this morning. Everything he's done, he is the ultimate source for us. He is, as we sang, the cornerstone. Everything lands on him. And God, we remember as the baskets overflowed with abundance, God, would you empower us to be vessels of your, your love and your grace? And may we be the people to provide that for the lives of those around us. God, we thank you for everything you've done for us and that you continue to do in us, Lord. We love you, God. Work in us, work through us. Bring the needy and the hurting, the hungry, those who need help. Lord, we are ready to serve them. If you're ready to serve God's people, would you just say, I'm ready? I'm ready. And if you think you have to be fully like fixed in all your situations before you can serve, you don't. God wants to continue to fix you and to work through you through you while, while he's doing the work in you and through you. Lord, make us a church that serves the people of this community. Make us a church that serves the people in this church. The people to our left and our right They are part of the body of Christ and we are united with them and we thank you for them, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody says amen. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.